Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. My next guest on Eurocron is a native of Wisconsin and a lifelong Packer fan. He's been known to wear a cheese head on occasion while spending his career in both the corporate and educational worlds of recruiting, teaching, training, counseling, and developing effective leaders. His extensive travel and cross-cultural knowledge supports outstanding presentation skills, having led workshops and seminars worldwide. He's also served in positions of leadership for several professional organizations with a bachelor degree from Ball State, followed later by a master and doctoral studies at the University of Tennessee, all in the fields of education and leadership. He's worked in teaching and administration at several universities in the U.S., plus taught or lectured on four continents in addition to once directing the recruiting efforts for a Fortune 100 company in America. He spent approximately half his career in human resources and half in education with proven ability to adapt to and communicate effectively across a variety of cultures, giving over 300 presentations worldwide. He is currently, as he says, mostly retired in Arizona. Lastly, Coach Bob Stanell, as he is known to me, was my youth football coach, and today we are speaking for the first time in close to 50 years. Coach Bob, it's a privilege and honor to have you as my guest today on Yurkron. How are you? I am doing as well as can be expected for an old man. <laughs> well, it's great to hear your voice, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we uh, connected through cyberspace, and, and here we are chatting today. Um, there are so many different directions we could start here. Where would you like to begin your extraordinary story, Coach? Um, I think it's probably, since you know me from coaching, I guess I'll, I'll start uh, way back there and let you take it from there. I, um, when I moved to Houston after being a, a teacher, coach, and YMCA program director in Wisconsin and Iowa. I moved to Houston because I got mad during a 14-inch snowstorm in Iowa and threw down my shovel and said, that's it, I'm getting the heck out. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, selected Houston because I thought it had the best uh, job market at the time and ended up... Um, uh, getting a job in human resources there and working my way up to uh, the director of uh, recruiting and college relations for uh, uh, what was then a Fortune 100 company in the oil field. It's all, of course, changed and sold now. But when I got the job, I had, having been an athlete all my life and coach, I walked into the uh, YMCA down there on, um, I don't remember the address, Longview or somewhere there in Spring Branch, YMCA, just to get some exercise. And I walked in and I was, ended up talking to the director and he said, um, uh, look, uh, I got a 
team that needs a youth football coach. She says, would you do that for me? And I sort of shrugged. I said, well, sure, what the heck? I thought it'd be fun having been a high school head football coach and what have you. So I took it, and that happened to be a team called uh, the Colts that uh, Lonnie and Brandon Davis and Tad Swiderski and uh, uh, their courts and such were on. Um, And uh, we did quite well. So at the end of the year, some parents came to me, uh, particularly the, let's see, the Urquarts and the Blacks and the Davidics, and said, would I come up to this other league and coach the Comanches? And I um, I agreed um, because I was enjoying it, and that's how I ended up coaching the Comanches. And as we've talked about before, you and I share a a lot of things in common. Um, One of those is we have both coached youth football teams. I coached a youth football team for six years. And um, lots of great memories, especially uh, the the way they did it in Katy. I coached out in Katy. They they tried to keep the teams together for the whole six years. Of course, we had a few players come and go. But it was really nice uh, seeing those players develop and, and continue on as young men. What are some of your favorite memories about coaching youth football? Well, I had, um, when I went up to the Comanches, the things that go through your mind aren't necessarily big wins. They're more, um, seeing people happy, seeing kids having fun. Now, when I say that, please note that um, players who win have more fun than players that lose. Yes, I used to say that all (laughs) the time. Yes. (laughs) So you're always, um, you know, doing your best to get the most out of them. But I, 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 and I tried to do that. But you have certain philosophies that I learned uh, in college and following up in coaching. One of my coaches had once told me that, well, a really good coach might, might take a 500 club and make them into seven and three or eight and two, but he's not going to make them undefeated. A really bad coach might turn him into three and seven or two and five, but he's not going to lose every game. He says, but overall, a lot of it has to do with one, uh, the players on your team, are they, do they have some talent and they're willing to learn? And two, can you teach them? So I concentrated on, trying to be a good teacher. And that's what I tried to do, coaching them. And some things I remember is little legs. Because having gone from high school to Little League, when some of you guys, and you're probably included here, but I particularly (laughs) (laughs) remember Mark Perez, when he would get the ball on a reverse and, you know, score a touchdown with his little legs turning like crazy. 
uh, with everybody else trying to catch him. So, because that was always a funny image to me. And I was always particularly pleased when um, him or you or one who's, you know, because your father and Mark Perez's dad, Paul, were assistant coaches. It was always a thrill for me to see one of the coaches' kids do well because I, I knew what it meant to them even though we didn't talk about it. But it was a thrill to see them do well. Um, and I always believed that confidence was important. You try to give people confidence, a belief in themselves. Um, and that is, to me, critical. Even when I ended up teaching later in China, one of my they called me uh, Mr. Robert or Dr. Robert, whatever over there, Mo mostly Mr. Robert. Um, they used to tell me, Mr. Robert, the number one thing you gave us was confidence. You made us confident that we could talk English and be understood to people in uh, Americans and Englishmen and what have you. You always gave us confidence. And that was the same what I tried to do with Literally, I tried to take each player and put them in what was would be a position of success for them. So when I assigned someone to a guard or a tackle or a halfback or whatever position, it was always because I was looking at them and said, where can this person be successful? And I didn't move people around changing positions. Hmm. Why? Because I always thought that if you give a very young kid, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and try to get them to learn several positions, they will fail because it gets confusing. Yeah. You want them to learn one position that they can do so well that they have so much confidence then if you later choose to move them or coach moves from the next year, that's okay. You've built the confidence inside them. But, you know, there are certain plays I remember. And if you ask anybody, uh, like when like when the three ex-Comanches were here visiting me, about things they remember, each, of course, has their own specific things they would remember just as you would. Hmm. But like I said, I remember Mark Perez. I remember John Wynn once sitting wide open in the end zone. Uh, <laughs> and Stevie Bolton threw a long pass to him. And Wynn is on his knees. All he's got to do is catch the ball. It's a touchdown. And he dropped it. Hmm. <laughs> and I remember how embarrassed he was coming to the bench. And, you know, I just laughed it off because when he said, don't worry about it, John. I remember when we were on scored upon in our first five games. And in the sixth game, they scored a touchdown on a pass over Brandon Davis's head. And Brandon came to the bench crying because he had given up the first score of the year. Mm. And, you know, I told him the same thing. Don't worry about it, Brandon. <laughs> You're fine. Um, Tom told me a story that 
I didn't necessarily remember until he mentioned it. But he said, do you know what you changed during the week of the Panther game? And for those who don't know, the um, the Panthers were the defending champs and and seemed to have been the league's winners year after year, uh, coached by Claude Knight. Yes, I do remember. And, um, and I said, no, what are you talking about? Tom says, well, we you normally, he says, we would be practicing like three times a week. He says, the week of the Panther game, he says, we practice every day that week. You worked us so hard. Mm-hmm. I says, I did. <laughs> he, he says, yeah. I says, geez, I don't remember that. But Tom remembered it. But, of course, then we went out and beat the Panthers 36 to nothing. Mm. And, and I remember um, shaking hands with Coach Claude Knight in the middle of the field after the game. And I greatly respected him because of something he said to me. I thought he was a very uh, classy man and an individual because because of uh, this. Because, of course, I didn't have much dealings with him until except playing them. But he came out on the field and he shook my hand. And he said, he says, you know, I've dominated this league for years. He says, now you're here. He said, now I'm going to have to work harder to win. <laughs> and he laughed. And I and I thought that was really a classy thing to say from the guy. You know, no bitterness, no griping. That was funny. Yeah. And another play, um, well, other things I remember, of course, like the hatchets for your helmet. Yes. I made sure... And most people wouldn't realize this, but I made sure that everybody on the team got a hatchet or two. In other words, some of the guys who didn't get in much, who didn't play much or do much, I found a way to give them a hatchet. If they made anything that looked like a particularly good play, I would note it. And after the game, I would say, and I won't mention a player's name here, but <laughs> they had great block on that play. You get a hatchet. You know, and and to see each kid's li- eyes light up, especially those who got very few hatchets, that that was important to me, um, to give them that confidence and belief in themselves. Because I knew some of them, they were never going to play football again. They weren't going to rise in the game. But no matter how old they would get, they would remember getting that hatchet. Yeah, that's a great story and a great thought. Another thing was the coach of the the only team that beat us that year. Um, I can't even think of your name now. Um, but we had uh, beaten them earlier in the year, thirteen to nothing. And you know how how then both uh, the teams were on the same side of the field, uh, and the fans were on the other side. Yes, I remember. And you, and, and you stand. Uh, there was a line by the 50-yard line that neither team crossed. Uh-huh. And if the ball happened to be right around midfield, you could end up standing right next to your opposing coach. Well, I remember standing next to that opposing coach, and um, one of his assistants was uh, – yelling at the official, something, oh, call this, call that, and all, you know, things coaches yell. Yep. 
and and the head coach looked over his assistant, and he was standing right next to you. And I remember it so well. He looked at his assistant and says, "Oh, shut up! They're just kicking our ass." <laughs> Sour grapes. <laughs> and I started laughing, and he looked at the instructor shoulders. Well, you are. <laughs> so, That's so I remember great. particularly things coaches said that I, I thought was funny, and I. And I, I gave him credit for it because they, like Claude Knight, he didn't complain like this coach. He didn't complain. He said, you, know, you know, you're a big mess. That's all there is to it. Mm. So um, I respect people who uh, who take wins and losses in, in stride. Because if you remember that year, we outscored our opponents something like, 318 to 35 or something. It was just ridiculous. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, um, it, it was a year that, um, I don't care how old the players are to me that year, you know, we were like the Miami dolphins. <laughs> it was right. just, um, wonderful memories for me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and me as well. Those those are great. You you are so good at remembering moments and names. That's incredible. I mean, we're talking, like I said, close to fifty years ago. That's incredible, Coach. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LeVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LeVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeVon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeVon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LeVon at sold at pitneyproperties.com. Going another direction for a moment. I've read through various things on your website, which will have the link on yourcron.com, which is robertstanell.com. Stanell is with two L's. So my question, my question may be somewhat of a shotgun approach selected in um, random order. Let me start with this one. In Nepal's Chittawan National Park, you rode an elephant while chasing a rhino through eight foot tall grass <laughs> How in the world did that happen, Coach? <laughs> um, well, as you know from reading, um, over the years I've developed a, a great love for travel. Now, when my kids were growing up, um, 
I, they were, I think, in about maybe 40 states, but I'd been in every U.S. state, and it was actually in Houston when I started traveling international, not counting, of course, Mexico and Canada, um, because my job there sent me to several different places overseas. And I remember first walking down uh, a street in um, uh, Caracas, Venezuela, and I was walking down and looking around and seeing different things. And I thought, you know, I sort of like this. I find this interesting. And uh, I had uh, had a double major in college and I had been a world history teacher. So I liked all that. So it gets, when I had my, what I call my first retirement from the university in South Dakota, I sat in um, a little trailer in Mesa, Arizona that I bought in front of the TV and thought, well, is this all there is? Do I sit here now and wait to die? <laughs> and I said, no, I sold everything, including that trailer. I put um, what stuff I kept, which was in some clothes and routine personal things. Mm-hmm. in a bunch of boxes in the back of my brother's garage who at the time lived in Vegas and had a huge home and a three and a half car garage and he kept one car in and I piled all this stuff in the back of his garage and I um because I had earlier applied for a, well when I when I the first thing I did was I traveled three months to Southeast Asia. Then I came back home about Christmas time, because that was in fall. Then in the winter, I traveled three months to uh, South America. And then I came back, uh, my stuff's still in my brother's garage, and I'm sleeping in his spare room and said, you know, I think I want to go teach in China because I had stopped in Taiwan during my time in Southeast Asia and thought I'd like to see more. So I applied for a teaching job in China. I applied to four cities, got four offers, and um, took the one in Wuhan. And I meant to spend a year to see a little of China, and they ended up liking so much. I spent over five years. Now, how did that lead to Nepal? Well, when I finally was leaving China for my second retirement, so to speak, I went to Tibet and went to Everest Space Camp. Uh, So I was there at, uh, I think, 69 years old, and I was standing at 17,500 feet at Everest Space Camp and seeing Mount Everest. And I thought, this is pretty cool. And I always liked the mountains. So I thought, well, I was going to wander some places before I went back to America. So I took a flight to Kathmandu and thought, well, I'll go see the other side of the Himalayas. (laughs) So I go to Kathmandu. And while I'm in Nepal, I traveled several places. They were interesting. Uh, <clears throat> Pokhara 
which is the other side of the Himalayas. Hang on, I need a drink here. Sure. <clears throat> so, so I'm wandering around Pakara, and I'm uh, hiking in the foothills of the Himalayas. I was at 70 and not knowing anyone up there. I didn't want to, um, I wasn't prepared uh, good enough to take some massive hike in overnight in the Himalayas. Uh-huh. But I did hike in the foothills and that outside of Pokhara and the views and just seeing them to me was cool. Yeah. And I, so when I'm going to different places and I went to several other different cities and I read a lot. I mean, I read history before I go. I read guidebooks before I go. So I have some idea what I want to do. Uh-huh. And I read uh, one of these things about, well, World, World Chittawan National Park was uh, one of the neat places to go in Nepal. And that uh, it was, uh, I think, the biggest national park uh, that wasn't in the Himalayas. It was, um, and it was supposedly jungle with a river running through it. What happened? So I think, yeah, that sounds cool. So I go down there to a place called Tiger, Temp- Tiger Temple Lodge. I had a book in advance, and I did that for my hostel in Kathmandu because um, you can't get there by yourself. Uh, you have to take a bus to a nearby small city and then the lodge sends someone to meet you and to bring you to the lodge because to go to the lodge uh, they have to take a a jeep over four dirt roads and four-wheel drive jeeps then somebody meets you with a dugout canoe they throw your stuff in and you uh, go across this say medium-sized river and then another four-wheel picks you up on the other side and drives you in four or five miles hard to tell how much because it's a dirt road and you're bouncing over hell so it feels like a hundred at times (laughs) (laughs) but you get to the lodge and the lodge really quite beautiful it's up on a little um there's a little lake next to it or large pond or whatever um and the lodge each of the buildings is up on stilts because so uh dangerous animals can't get in and when i get down there oh and then the, they have maybe i don't know 12 15 cabins it's not a huge place and then they have um a dining hall up on stilts in the center, and then they got um, a sort of a pier that sticks out over the water, but it's more like um, more like a patio that's up on stilts, so you can look down at the water and see whatever is swimming down below, which routinely was uh, gators and several times um, um, rhinos who like to swim and what have you Mm -hmm. 
and the different things you could do in the lodge, of course, were the elephants, which are common in Nepal, Thailand, India, throughout Southeast Asia. And um, earlier when I had been to Thailand and um, an elephant sanctuary, um, a couple of years before that, I had learned to ride like a mahout, uh, which is what they call the guy who controls the elephant. Hmm. So I was, I was up on the elephant with just me and, and my legs are wrapped around its huge neck. <laughs> and I took it for a, a little half mile walk because um, the sanctuary that was relatively small. So I went around this circular path and uh, you could feel every muscle in it. And, oh, man, this is, this is really interesting because I had been on, you know, elephants before, but sort of with multiple people and tourist attractions. Mm. This is the first time I had done it as a pure elephant. Mm. So, you know, you're up there pretending you're in a loincloth and beating your chest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I did all that. And, uh, and they'll take a picture for you up there, and which is probably on web, my website. I don't remember. But so I done similar to this before well now i wanted to go into the jungle and see what i could see uh because there were rhinos of course there and tigers there and various other animals um and i said well can i see a tiger he says no he says the tigers will see you but you will never see the tiger wow and that that made sense and meanwhile, the woman who had lived there, or she was the head of um, the camp, so to speak, in terms of the different people that worked there. And she had worked there um, like 15, 16 years. And she'd started out you know, low on a totem pole. And I asked her, what uh, is your biggest memory of here and she said well the first year was here we all slept in tents because we were building this lodge with nothing else here she says I was in a tent and I'm lying in the tent and I come up and I hear a tiger purring and growling and coming close to the tent and he lies down right next to me on the tent and I feel his body against me. Oh my God. She said, and I am afraid to move. She said, I did not move for maybe all night long until the tiger got up and walked away. Oh man. He says another time we had one of our uh, workers uh, before these huts were built. Um, attacked and dragged off and eaten by a tiger we sent a party after them when the tiger dragged him off screaming but we only found you know partially eaten body so it made me realize some things about the jungle and what these people had gone through just to build this place and of course um 
there were only two lodges in this entire national park because, you know, it was restricted, limited to people that could get in there. So I took a, a little ride with a couple other people on the back of an elephant and we spotted several rhinos and sometimes the rhinos would come and they would look at you and then stare right at the elephant because they don't see very well, go by smell. And I said to the Mahout on this particular one, well, will he charge? Will he do anything against us? He says, no, he says, the elephant, they will charge until they get close enough, which they did, coming right at us. Wow. He said, but then they will turn off because as they get close and their eyes adjust, they can see that this is much larger than them, mm. he said. So they turn. So that was interesting to see a rhino charge at an elephant and just turn and disappear. Also, at what is full speed for a rhino, I guess. That is um, crazy. But they're um, massive. And because this is a jungle, you know, we've always heard jungles have high grasses, mm. but this is the first time I'd seen them. I mean, the grass was 10 to 12 feet tall everywhere you looked, but of course, trees and stuff growing out of that. So something can be a, a couple of feet away from you and you don't see it, which is why um, you don't wander in there on foot because there's a very good chance you would uh, end up dying or being hurt badly. Um, but then I opted to take um, a private elephant deal. So there's just two of us on the back of the elephant now, uh, the mahout, because each elephant has its own mahout. They train and they work with only that one trainer and that's like their, their buddy or their driver and what have you. So the mahout is there. I'm there right behind them with sometimes having my arms around the mahout, sometimes not because it wasn't necessary. Yeah. But then um, we, we go off in the search of seeing what we could see. And first we go through, um, and elephants are afraid of nothing, okay? They, they march right through what was some kind of pond, river, lake, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, a water hole in the jungle. And as we're walking through, um, the elephant is holding his trunk up in the air to breathe, and water is lapping uh, at my ankles uh, <laughs> while we're going through this. And I, you know, we're going through pretty deep water, and the elephant just keeps on going. And we come back out again. Sometimes um, if we were going through a thick brush and... I would think, well, where are we going? There's no path. No worries. The elephant just puts his head against whatever he wants, knocks it down, and keeps on going. <laughs> He's a bulldozer. So I'm up there with my camera, and I'm trying to get a picture of whatever we might see. And these mahouts who work there all the time, 
um, and lived there, they are aware of every little sound in the jungle. Like, you know, listen, and they'll see something move, and they'll say, tiger, and they'll point over that way. And I'll say, well, are we going to go there? He says, no, you cannot get near tigers. He says, they, they will immediately leave the area, and you cannot get near them. It's, it's literally impossible. Hmm. So, okay, I said, what about rhino? He says, we're going to find a rhino. So... He would point when he would see these large grasses move, he would say, rhino, and boom, we're off. The elephant is running, at least running for an elephant. <laughs> and I don't know what their actual speed is, but we're off and running toward where this rhino is. And, of course, as soon as we get close, the rhino takes off. And then uh, he'll listen again, and he'll see where the leaves or the grass is moving, and Boom, we're off again. So we're chasing this rhino all over the place. And finally, we got close enough once, and this is pictures probably on my website, which is not a, a great picture, but it's a picture of the rhino grazing in the high grass, which was snapped really quickly because, boom, then the rhino's off again. Um, we did catch another rhino... Uh, grazing in a little um, uh, stream that would lead eventually to the big river. But you're, you're off running again. Um, when, you know, you're feeling the elephant's muscles move under your, your uh, thighs and calves, and uh, you're off running. <laughs> and I'm up there thinking, God, this is amazing. <laughs> um and I, I grew up. Um, I grew up poor. I was the oldest of seven children. My father was uh, an alcoholic carpenter. Hmm. My mother was pregnant with me at sixteen and a tenth grade dropout. So, growing up. We visited family on farms in Wisconsin, and Chicago was 100 miles away. But uh, sorry, and the family farms were up toward Green Bay, about 120 miles. So basically, I never got more than 120 miles of my home growing up, except twice. In eighth grade, my class took a trip over to Detroit. And uh, I was told that when I was five years old, we took a trip back to where my mother was born in Dickinson, North Dakota. But of course, being five years old, I don't remember a whole lot about it except a few photos I've seen. So when I started traveling, um, my first my goal was to see all the U.S. because I had no aspirations to see the world. But now that I was doing these things and lived in China and stuff, I was like, damn, I'm going to go to as many places as I can before I die. Yeah. Uh, when I was working at the university uh, as a vice president of student development in South Dakota, I had seven officers reporting to me. One was the 
international office. And each of the other six that reported to me, I had a director running them, but the international office I handled myself because it was a small office, what have you. And every, well, for a couple of years, every spring, I took students on tours of um, South America. For two weeks, we would go to Paraguay, Argentina, and Chile, and cross the Andes, and uh, show them the world. Um, and this was a university in South Dakota, mind you, mm-hmm. which means most of my kids were from very small towns. So I was also amazing them with some of the things they saw. Matter of fact, I was so pleased this one girl the after she graduated, I saw I saw you doing special this summer. She says, Yes, I'm going on the hike up Kilimanjaro. So I had unleashed unleashed this spirit in this young woman that she too wanted see the world and that's that goes back with what i said about confidence um you always want students to um have confidence and to do more than they ever thought they could do um which is what i try to do with those trips and i know that's diverting again but i get that way when you're old and paying attention <laughs> no no that's quite all right i do want to mm-hmm. i do want to uh, jump back to something uh, you mentioned earlier coach about mount everest base camp and i i've read books about climbing mount everest and you mentioned that you were at seventeen thousand five hundred feet at 69 years old is that the highest altitude you had experienced up to that time oh yeah and how, how I mean, did that? I, mean, like, I had yeah. hiked in the in the Rockies above, you know, like ten, twelve thousand feet, mm-hmm. but nothing, nothing close to that. No. And how did that um, affect you, physically and maybe mentally as well? Well, the key thing physically is oxygen is much thinner. Right. And I was, and you, you may or may not remember this, but. I was always a relatively high energy person. I mean, I, I was, would move, I would demonstrate. Yes. I remember. (laughs) Well, in any case, um, when I started to move, I had to go, whoa, because I couldn't move at any speed. I was fine. I was fine in Mount Everest as long as I moved like I was in thick mud you know, or something, but I, if I moved slow, I could breathe and my body was fine. But boy, if I tried to pick up my speed, you felt it real quick. Yeah. So, um, I had been warned about this, um, by the, the guide of our eight person van that took us into, um, uh, couple uh the parking lot a couple hundred yards away before we had to walk into to base camp um but yeah so i was a little concerned particularly being older but um i was able to handle it okay as long as i i move slow matter of fact that's why i 
I wasn't afraid to take some short hikes at, um, on the other side of the Himalayas in Nepal because I, I now knew what I had to do. And as long as I moved slow and if necessary, stop and sit on a rock for a minute or two, I would be fine.